Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. It's been a big year for movies and TV shows in Rhode Island, including Hocus Pocus 2 and HBO's Gilded Age. What does it take to bring film crews to Rhode Island, and are the state's motion picture production tax credits paying off? Here to give us a look behind the scenes is Stephen Feinberg, the executive director of the Rhode Island Film and TV office. He's also the host of Double Feature on Rhode Island PBS. Our conversation after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Stephen Feinberg, the host of Double Feature on Rhode Island PBS and the executive director of the Rhode Island Film and TV office. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Ed. Nice to be here on this beautiful day. Uh, It's a beautiful day here in Rhode Island. So before we dig into movies and TV film in Rhode Island, I understand that you're a film historian. And this week you're screening one of my favorite movies, It's a Wonderful Life. My wife and I practically had the whole thing memorized. So um, what's something most people don't know about the making of that film? Well, the It's a Wonderful Life was based on a, uh, a short story called The Gift. Jimmy Stewart had just come out of the war, and so this was a big production. But the big thing that people don't understand, and if you watch the movie, it's amazing. They filmed it in this hot, hot summer. It was a heat wave, and so people were passing out because they're wearing all of their winter garb. Oh, like the opening scene where yes, all, they, all they, that's they the, fall yeah, through the, the ice the, and yeah, everything, the, and the snows coming down, which was which was a soap. It was like a, a soapy substance that was the that was the snowflakes. Uh, it was a heat wave, Ooh. and um, it it's actually one of my top two favorite films of all time. When we revitalized the Greenwich Odeon, uh, which had really been dormant, one of my goals was to show classic films again. The moment I totally, literally choked up, we had a packed house for uh, It's a Wonderful Life on a snowy night. And I couldn't have been happier that people cared enough to come out in a snowstorm to see that movie. It's it's special. And to see it on the big screen. Yeah, Yeah, it's great to see every year. So let's talk about movies and TV shows made in Rhode Island. What's your pitch 
to the industry about why they should film here? Well, I always say we're the smallest state with the greatest backlot. Because we have such diverse locations in close proximity, you can be in the Goddard Park in the woods on a horse trail one moment, they could be at the front door of the Newport Mansions uh, the next moment, or cityscape here in Providence. So that's something that's attractive. I see rush hour traffic last five minutes here in Rhode Island, which is a big difference than New York or Los Angeles. The fact that we have people of power primarily under one roof at the State House is great. If you're in Los Angeles and you need to move something forward, well, then you have to go to Sacramento. That's quite a distance. We don't have that problem. And then I tell people, Rhode Island's a lot like Tombstone. <laughs> they say, <laughs> what do you mean? I say, we're a town. Everybody knows everybody. If I don't know somebody, I know somebody who knows somebody. And that can be very powerful. A lot of the state had Hocus Pocus fever this year. Yes. What did it take to bring that film here? Well, that was a couple of years in the making. I knew Hocus Pocus, the strength of it, the family dynamic of that, the cult status of a film that really, when it first came out, was not super successful, but... As time went on, much like It's a Wonderful Life, which was a financial disaster when it came out, as years went on, audiences embraced it. Same thing with Hocus Pocus. So I would ask about Hocus Pocus too. Sometimes they were on, they were off, different directors. And finally, I said, look, we have the Cranston Street Armory. It's about 90 feet high wide open. If you need to fly some witches around, we can accommodate that. I was able to talk to the Department of Administration about making sure that the uh, Cranston Street Armory was clean and clear, and I didn't want to even talk to Disney about that unless I had full control that Disney would not be embarrassed by it. And so that worked out. We sealed the deal, I believe it was in February. They came here in to officially start, we had done scouting, but they officially started pre-production in June and then wrapped up in March the following year. Hmm. Any good behind-the-scenes stories about the making of Hocus Pocus? There's not a lot I could share. Um, Just give us one. Uh, this is something that um, it's not super funny, but it's challenging. So this is in the middle of COVID, right? So I'm having dinner with the producer and suddenly his phone rings. Oh, my. The whole hair and makeup department went down with COVID. Oh, wow. And he has to find a whole new hair and makeup department by 8 o'clock in the morning. What did they do? <laughs> Frankly, when something like that happens, you're like, that's your fire, my friend. <laughs> that's your problem. And he gets paid big bucks. I know he knows yeah, what yeah. he's doing. How about HBO's Gilded Age? Newport oh. Mansion seemed like the obvious choice for this series. Did the makers come to you or no. did you have to do this some convincing? Was, no, this was, this was for me a 10 to 12-year journey. Wow. Bob Greenblatt, who at one point was the head of president of Showtime, during the heyday of Downton Abbey, Bob being a smart, smart guy and a producer as well, he engaged Julian Fellows to do an American version of Downton Abbey that he called the Gilded Age. I immediately called Bob and said, hey, we have the highest concentration of Gilded Age homes here in Newport, Rhode Island, and I really want to make sure that we are at the table. I want to film that here, blah, blah, blah. 
And Bob's like, Steve, it's really early on. I don't care. I want to be at the table. I want to be at the table. So I then went to Trudy Cox at the Preservation Society of Newport, had a big meeting with all of her people. I said, I need to know everything that we have to offer. I need to know every mansion, every costume, every prop, everything. If we have anything that's if it's cataloged, I'd like to have it. And so what we were able to do is get everything. I then stayed on Bob like a dog on a bone for many years. Now we just it won an Emmy Award for season one. We just wrapped up season two about two weeks ago or three weeks ago. That's supposed to premiere in April. God willing, we're going to have three seasons. They're working on the stories now uh, as we speak in London. So the Gilded Age is one of the proudest moments because it promotes the history of Rhode Island to a worldwide audience with the best writing the attention to authenticity, and then to have HBO making sure that they're pumping in the right amount of money to make sure the creative levels are at their highest. Yeah, you're talking about the value of the the, the program. And one thing that attracts the film crews to Rhode Island is Rhode Island's tax incentive program. Yes. So earlier this year, the State Office of Revenue Analysis issued a report saying the tax credit program fails to break even. What's your response to that? Let me start out by saying, the way the law is written, it's not a collaborative effort. If it was a collaborative effort, it would be a much more realistic and comprehensive study. In fact, I found 11 pages of uh, miscalculations or not even miscalculations, but omissions. Omissions and sometimes things that I felt were derelict. So what I did do is submitted to both the legislature, the governor, and the public my comments. A company called Industrial Economics out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, they did a very thorough study and found for every $1 we give in a tax credit, return $5.33 of economic activity. They used the TV series Nosferatu as an example, as a template, where they had gone through every single piece of expenditure, did a full audit, and went, found out that out of the 39 cities and towns, 37 of them were used for the show as well. Isn't there a cap on Rhode Island's film tax credit program, and is that limit what you can do? Yes. I am restricted. I have to turn productions away. So when we started out, we were one of the first programs in the nation. I think there, Louisiana had a program. So I wrote the legislation and had many, many sleepless nights for six months of putting on two hats, the state of Rhode Island sheriff hat, hat and the predator shark Hollywood hat producer. And I had to make sure that they were getting what they, a win-win, protecting the state and doing all this stuff. But other states then copied our program or sometimes they would take the program that I wrote and tweak it and I would say, oh my God, that's, that's bad. You're going to cause some trouble. Then places like Massachusetts copied our program, and they might have made it even more liberal. Uh, so, but then what happened was, uh, I think it was Governor Kachiri at the time wanted to limit the amount of programming. So they limited me to $15 million of tax credits per calendar year. Hmm. Folks who want to invest in infrastructure want to return on their investment. If they say, oh, I'm going to spend a million dollars for this company to buy equipment and such, and Rhode Island's restricting the amount of production I can get so I can return, get my return on investment, I can go to Massachusetts, 
where I can do the same thing and they have no cap on their program. And Massachusetts, from when they copied our program, never put a cap on it. So are you trying to get the cap lifted or so, raised here so, in Rhode Island? So we start out at $15 million, then it went up to 20, 25 million, 30, and this is the first year I'll have 40 million available this year and next year. Huh. So any proposal to lift it farther I, in I would, this yes. year's legislative uh, session? We, we haven't talked about that yet. I was just grateful that they gave me the 40 million for this year and 40 million for next year. Like right now, uh, if everything goes according to plan, I have productions lined up for 2023. Can All you name any of them? I'll say hopefully Gilded Age Season 3. We're waiting to get the green light on that. I've got some really cool things. There's one I'm trying to lock in that is so high profile. I want Rhode Island to be at the table because it's uh, A-list director, A-list actor, big Rhode Island historic moment. And I want it <laughs> for us uh, because it will – it's pretty cool. I, I, you know, it's very cool. So, but other than that, we have, we have very varied productions. We have independent films and some larger films. So, hey, last question. What's your hope for Rhode Island's relationship with the film and TV industry in the next five or 10 years? I would like to see more infrastructure. I'd like to see, a, frankly, the Rhode Island film studio. That's my dream. I want to see the shovel hit the dirt. I'll have our own studio. I want to have our own studio with sound stages. I want to have a, uh, you know, a couple of those streets, whether it's a Western Street or, or like we could have done the Gilded Age at the time. You know, there's different things we could have done uh, or could do. And I want to have some landscape available for exterior stuff and have post-production. I want to have all of the um, equipment to be available Obviously, I would love to have uh, the cap removed because I don't like turning away productions. I've had to turn away Academy Award-winning directors, friends of mine. It's Philip Noyce. He's Australian. He did the Brotherhood pilot. Steve, you have any credits? I want to make this TV pilot. I said, Philip, I don't have any. It's so hard because this is a guy that I love, admire his work, and he helped bring us Brotherhood. But if I don't have the credits available, he's forced to go somewhere else. All right, Stephen Feinberg, thanks for joining me today. This has been a wonderful treat, and I want to thank you for all the wonderful work you do. Uh, we appreciate it. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. If you like the podcast, do us a favor. Follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all anytime and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.